Welcome to the State of Developer Education, a podcast by Major League Hacking. We explore how technical leaders are creatively tackling the developer education gap to help prepare the next generation of technologists for the real world and build businesses that can adapt to any changes in the technology ecosystem. I'm your host, John Gottfried. Welcome back to the State of Developer Education. This week's guest is Liz Moy, who is a developer relations engineer at Intercom. I'm so excited for this conversation and to hear all of the amazing things that you've been working on. How are you doing today? Yeah, thanks so much for having me, John. I'm doing great, and I am really excited to chat with you more and hopefully also learn some things along the way as well through our conversation. Fantastic. Well, that is a great jumping off point. The place I start with all of my guests is I love to hear people's origin stories. I find it is sort of informative about how people approach their current work to hear how people first got interested in coding and tech and developer relations. So what's your origin story? Okay, well, my origin story is really strange. I know that a lot of questions come up sometimes when it comes to like developer education or DevRel of like, oh, are you a teacher? Does this kind of come naturally to you? And I think for me, like I've always been really good at like explaining things through writing in particular. I went to school for journalism. And when I graduated, the easiest job for me to get was writing about corn. I worked for this agency that worked with a company that made like corn seeds. And I was writing about like drought tolerant corn hybrids and It was actually kind of interesting. Like looking back at the time, I was like, this is so awful. Why am I doing this? But it's kind of a funny story now. So I definitely feel like that's always kind of where a strength of mine has been in terms of breaking down complex topics or ideas into more digestible pieces and also explaining how you might approach a particular problem or idea. So I was working in content marketing for quite a while. And then I learned how to code and I was a software engineer for a few years. And then I met a bunch of people that worked in DevRel and they were like, oh, we kind of combined this job you used to do with this job you're doing now. And that was about five years ago. So I guess I've been working in DevRel for about five years now. That's really cool. You know, the corn one is not one I've heard before. I've heard a lot of like interesting paths into tech, but that's a new one for me. Are there any similarities to the corn industry and DevRel? Shockingly, there are. Corn technology is constantly changing, believe it or not. Like, you might be surprised to hear this, but it is like there's like these constantly these new hybrids that they're coming out with, which like ethically, that's a conversation for another day. But it's really important that you know how to like plant the seeds and like the impacts that they can have on your yield and all that kind of thing. And I feel like there actually is a lot of similarities with like explaining how to set something up, like make sure you don't like hit your rate limits by doing this is maybe not that far away from like, don't plant these seeds next to these other seeds or they might ruin your crops. So I think, yeah, just that idea of like making sure people have all the information they need because no one setup is going to be exactly the same, right? Like someone might be using a piece of software or a product, but the way that they're going to use it or the environment in which they're going to use it is completely different from another person. And you can't always cover all of those cases. Like you can only do the best that you can. So just giving them the information they need to sort of like take it and run and like figure the problems out for themselves. Yeah, that actually makes a ton of sense. That's a great analogy. I studied history myself and I certainly have not found quite as apt similarity between history and DevRel, but 
the way that you're taught to communicate subjects in like a liberal arts program versus a tech program feels like very applicable. Like I know a lot of DevRel people who have liberal arts backgrounds and it's a very, very natural fit. But it's so hard to like learn how to make reports and stuff. (laughs) That's the part of my job that I always have a really hard time with. And I think I'm improving slowly but surely, but I totally agree. I feel like the way our brains end up working, we can bring a lot of like the storytelling aspects of it as well, like making these connections, connecting with people, like having conversations. I feel like a lot of DevRel and developer education folks are like extremely good at that. And then some of them are also just good at everything. And they're also great at like metrics and reporting and stuff. But like for me personally, that's the part that I'm always having to work on. It's definitely one of the harder things that I've learned as well. So I know that you actually host your own podcast as well, which I am a fan of. I'm curious, like, as you've been building that and telling stories in sort of an audio format, what are some of the things you've learned about how to, like, speak to developers and build those pieces of content? Yeah, Ileana, that's such an interesting question. Very meta, like being on a podcast, talking about a podcast. I think, like, when I first started the podcast... I really wanted it to be like a conversation like you and I are having, just talking to developers about what they're building, what their experiences have been like. I was fortunate to do this program in 2019 called the Recurse Center. And it was honestly like a very life-changing experience for me. And I wanted the podcast to just kind of feel like me and another person at Recurse Center, like just chatting in the kitchen. So that was really fun. And I loved that sort of approach. And then I kind of wanted to like mix it up a little bit and try something slightly different and really make it a little bit more about like sharing about solutions in a particular industry. And so I decided to focus on healthcare for that because there were just a lot of really interesting stories, honestly, that came out of ways that people used telemedicine and technology during the pandemic. So it was like a very different feel, but I think it was a really good way to not only like give a platform for the technology and help people understand like things that are possible now that people had to sort of pull together overnight, but also the things that have existed for a long time that have been around for a while that sort of these really early adopters and innovators have been like trying to get off the ground for many years. And it wasn't really until this big life-changing event happened that they were able to just like take off with it. So I think like when I listen to a podcast, I guess which like sample size of one, but it's like when I hear something that never occurred to me, when I hear an idea or I hear a story and I'm like, whoa, that is wild. And I just like want to like soak it in even more. Like I want to learn more about it. I want to find out. I want to, if it's like a particular guest that I just really connected with, like I want to see like what projects they're working on or whatever it might be. So I think there's a lot of directions you can go with a podcast and it's sort of based on like the outcome that you might want to have as both the host and also like what you want your listeners to get out of it. Yeah, I absolutely love how you describe that. And I feel like the idea that a podcast can sort of like plant a seed for lack of a, you know, more on the nose descriptor there, but like the fact that I can plant a seed for someone and get the gears turning about how to approach something differently has a lot of parallels to DevRel and developer education. The stuff that you're working on now, like Intercom, I feel like is a pretty well-known piece of software. I'm curious, like in the past, when you've worked on things that were maybe less well-known or less mainstream, how you found those hooks to get developers interested in the platforms that you were talking about? 
Yeah, I mean, it's a pretty, I guess, obvious one, but like jumping on trends, right? Jumping on things that people are really interested in. I was working for a startup that sort of had like a cybersecurity and a compliance angle to the product. And there were a lot of different applications for a very like particular product that we had that was being able to run any sort of like sensitive processes inside of a secure enclave, which is, you know, like a completely separate part of a machine that no one can crack and no one can touch. And like it was a thing that was definitely kind of hard to show like why it's important, why it's exciting, right? Like for security people, they get it. Like you don't have to sort of explain anything to them. They've heard of it. They've known about it. But for, I think, like the average developer, it's like, how would I use this? What would I use this for? And so actually one of the engineers at the company built this little demo that I used a lot because I thought it was so cool because like one of the potential applications for it was doing like medical image processing. So if you have like sensitive data, that's like a medical image. And so he took like a machine learning model and was able to like run all of the processing on an image in the secure enclave. And then it would highlight areas of the scan that could potentially be cancerous. And so that one got a lot of attention from developers just because it was like cool, like it looked cool. And for people that were coming from sort of like a healthcare background, I think like healthcare and finance were sort of like the main industries that were interested in this product. But for people that were coming from that, maybe their particular use case wasn't that exact thing. But again, we talked about it kind of like inspired them like, oh, then I could use that for this as well. So yeah, I think like kind of finding those things that are very, I guess like visually catching, I guess I don't mean even particularly like with your eyes, but just like something that like pops out. Like I feel like when everybody watched like the OpenAI demo day, everybody was like, whoa, did you see that? You know, trying to get those things that like are really memorable that catched your attention. And then in that same vein as well, the things that are just like kind of the new hotness. Obviously, with the current times, it's like everything around AI. And then, yeah, finding ways to just connect that to your audience of developers and like the things that they care about. I actually did see the medical enclave tutorial blog post, whatever we're calling it here. But like, it is one of those things where you open it up and you're like, this is unexpected. Like, this is novel. This is interesting. And it draws you in. Because for anyone who Googles it afterwards, you open it up and there's a photo of a brain scan right at the top. That's kind of unique, right? Like people are used to looking at a bunch of text on a screen and anything that differentiates from that kind of excite you in a different way that you didn't necessarily expect. Like I remember, I don't think we ever worked at Twilio at the same time, but like one of the tutorials I wrote, which I did more uh, as a personal curiosity than a project I thought would get a lot of views was about controlling robots with Twilio, which like in reality, like is not a common customer use case, but like, yeah. <laughs> it had that novelty component that yeah. I think gets people excited about stuff. And developers are naturally curious in a lot of ways. And so what you're saying, like makes a ton of sense there around the brain scans as a way to hook people in almost. Yeah, I remember actually David did it at our, just like a brilliant engineer, like such a great guy. He did it at this little demo day that we had. And I was just like, we need that <laughs> for like our docs and everything. So, and yeah, like the post that you wrote is also an excellent example. And I feel like Twilio, it's one of those companies too, where the product is just so 
flexible. Like it's so creative. You can apply it in so many different ways that it really makes it fun. Like figuring out like, ooh, it's this like very creative, like very different angle. That's like something that's actually kind of fun for me to set up, but then also is really useful for people because I'm sure it's like they come onto the site to look at that and then they're like, oh, I could do this other thing with this. And then like the classic Twilio thing is always like, oh, you get an engineer to use it at one job and they're going to use it for the rest of the jobs that they ever have. Mm -hmm. That's kind of like the play, right? So almost doing that at the very early stages of like, let me hook you with this creative thing and then like keep you in the funnel or in the process. Yep, 100%. Speaking of hooking people with like fun, creative things, you mentioned earlier that Recurse Center was kind of a formative experience for you. Uh, I know a number of people in New York who have done the program and said similar things. Could you talk a little bit about like what was so unique about it and if there are any things that you've sort of taken away from that experience into your day-to-day work? Yeah, I would say I was really fortunate that I was able to do my batch in person. And I think that, and just like for context too, basically it's a sabbatical program. So they do expect you to be there full time. It's not a boot camp you bring personal projects or things that you want to work on. Or honestly, you can just like pair with other people the whole time if you want. It's very flexible in kind of how you want to approach it. But you can come for either one week, six weeks, or 12 weeks. So I did a 12-week batch, and I did it in person. And everybody is just incredibly friendly and very curious. And you can work on anything that you're excited about, like anything that you want to work on. And like, I think there was just so much like opportunity for like if someone for some reason, a lot of people in my batch were really into like live coding with music. So making music with code. And so two people got really good at it. And then they would be like teaching these workshops all the time. And so we could like all do it together and stuff. And there were like times where you could give like talks. You could either do a technical talk or like if you just wanted to practice public speaking, you could do like a lightning talk on like a random topic. And so I don't want to badmouth tech companies because obviously they're doing the best they can to like get people excited and like feel connected and stuff. But sometimes I feel like when they have you do these sort of like lightning talks or demos or this or that, it can be a bit like forced. Or like we're doing this because we have to, or like we're doing it for a very like functional reason. Like we need to show whatever we release this week. Whereas like there, it was just so fun. You would show up and you wouldn't want to leave because people were just excited to like share what they were working on and what they were doing. But yeah, I think it's just a really good time to also grow as an engineer because there's just so much talent there that just sort of like naturally flocks there. And I was still pretty junior when I went. So I was looking for kind of a lot of like handholding and mentorship and like pairing and stuff. And that was just really good for me because it just got me. I think I was still a little bit afraid to ask questions, like afraid to look silly. And that helped me sort of start getting over that fear Especially when you see like really like senior people, really like accomplished people, like running into a bug that you're like, oh, like that bug actually was hard. Like it wasn't just because I don't know what it is. You know what I mean? So, I mean, this is not meant to be a pitch for Recurse Center, but it was a lovely experience. I think it's like, I think they talk a lot about like unlearning too and like some of the materials and like kind of unlearning some of the sort of ideas of how you learn Because we have these very rigid ideas, I think, especially in the United States, you have to have like a formal training, you have to go to school, you have to take these standardized tests and like it can only look this way. But like 
really learning can look so many different ways and it works differently for so many different people. And part of like feeling empowered to grow is figuring out what way works for you. I absolutely love that. Are there ways that you've been able to apply that to your work in building developer communities and working with developers as advocate or evangelist? Yeah, I think encouraging people to rely on each other and not just like the titled like DevRel folks, right? Like I think that's kind of the ideal case is when you sort of create these like champions or these like people that become excited about your product and become experts in it. And like they can then be the ones, whether it's someone specifically within someone's team or maybe someone within like a forum or a Slack channel or something, but everybody can start learning from each other as well. And I think it's a really interesting time to be working in education or in DevRel because there's just so many different ways to approach this. There's so many different platforms. There's Slack, there's Discord, there's a bunch of different forums. I feel like I learn about new ones all the time. I just met somebody the other day who that was kind of like their startup angle. It was like activating developer communities like regionally with like a platform that they have. So it's really complicated. I think I feel that way. I think it can be complicated to figure out which direction to go. And again, it's so just dependent on like your product, the developers that you're wanting to work with, where they're already spending time and sort of like have thriving communities as well. Because then, of course, there's also just like the communities that aren't run by like a company that are just like organic and have come up as a result of like people being friends with each other and being like, oh, yeah, we all do this for work. But then a lot of us do this as like a hobby as well. Yeah, I think it's kind of funny because there is a lot of thought put into how to incentivize the behavior that you're describing. But in the best case scenario, people are sort of intrinsically motivated to do it for non-incentivized reasons, right? Like gathering with your friends to talk about a cool project you're working on or having a meetup in your local city. The reward might be the fact that you have peers to talk about something with, not getting like a piece of swag. The swag is nice too, but I do think that there's often an overemphasis placed on that part of it. Yeah, I definitely agree. And I guess part of it is also just, I don't know, I can just think three or four people's names just came to mind of like, oh, those are people who just love sharing information. People who have like taken the time to just help me old colleagues, people that I've met at conferences with like no skin in the game. Like they don't even work for a company that I'm struggling with a piece of technology for or anything like that. I think there are also just those like, honestly, like angels, really kind-hearted people who love solving problems and they will get as much like excitement out of you solving the problem as like from having figured it out. So obviously those are like more rare, <laughs> but they are out there, I think. Yeah, 100%. One of my favorite feelings, and I know you've done a lot of hackathons too, is when you're like sitting next to someone at a hackathon, helping them work through like a weird bug. And then suddenly they have that like light bulb moment. And sometimes you're just sitting there as a rubber duck. And sometimes you're sitting there like actually helping them through it. But seeing them like get over that hump and be able to actually like work on their project is, it's really cool. It's definitely one of my favorite aspects of that kind of like building event. I totally agree. And yeah, one of the questions that we talked about maybe discussing was yeah. about like format, like what mm -hmm. formats sort of are like most interesting. And 
yeah, I mean, live events are my favorite for that reason. There's just really nothing like that experience. And it's funny because I participated in some hackathons when I was a developer, or like that was my title. And then when I came to Twilio, I think I did like two in-person ones Mm -hmm. before everything shut down. Even like doing those in-person ones, like right when I was doing my onboarding and stuff, it was still rewarding, you know? And once we came back to doing them in person again, that was really wonderful. And I had moved over to the UK at that point. So that was super interesting to me to see what it's like also running events internationally and like the differences just that come with doing them in various different countries. But the one downside is it's just like it doesn't scale. You can't do these events quite at the same volume that you would obviously like written documentation or guides or tutorials, videos, audio, things like that. And so I think it becomes now a bit more of a question of like, how do we really like make the most of those in-person experiences? How can we sort of like make sure that we're getting everything out of it that we can? Just because it's a lot different, I think, after COVID. And I think that budgets have gotten tighter when it comes to like in-person events. But I also firmly believe like there's really nothing like being in person. I don't think that it can be like replicated as much as like we all hoped there would be one amazing platform that would do that (laughs) for us. (laughs) Yeah, it definitely feels like there was a land rush a little bit when out of necessity, right, of building the platforms, trying to migrate communities over to them, and then eventually sort of reconsidering the balance of in-person versus virtual engagements like even for us Mm -hmm. at mlh like we did the exact same thing and i agree with you like i do think there are aspects of in-person events that are difficult or sometimes impossible to replicate in a virtual format there's definitely still a time and place for both but there's something special and like there's a lot of serendipity around being in a physical place with people for a set period of time like I'm, i'm curious like in your work Obviously, like the general pressure that I have seen for DevRel teams is do things that scale, right? Like do the things that can have a measurable ROI, that educate developers thousands at a time, not 10 at a time. How do you find the right balance between perhaps the higher impact in-person engagements versus maybe the higher reach virtual type of work? Yeah. I think it really depends on the type of company that you're at. Because like my experience at Twilio, during the time I was at Twilio, it was like, oh yeah, in-person events, no problem. Like, let's do it. That was very much like a strong tactic that we relied on quite a bit. Whereas like at some other places that I've worked, it very much is like what you were describing. It's like you have to have the rationale there. And if there's a way to do it in a way that scales over something more like high touch and personalized, then that is what's going to be preferred. I do think that, and again, this is very much, I guess, aimed at sort of like product companies that do have big customers. Like if you can get an ARR number on something, like you're much more likely to get something approved. Like if you can be like, oh, I want to run this event and I'm going to get developers from our top three ARR performing companies to attend people will pay attention to that, right? So I think there are kind of ways to justify some of these more like intensive and potentially expensive types of tactics, but it's like finding the angle that will like make the more business-minded folks happy. 
Or maybe it's like a usage thing. Maybe it's like, oh, this account, the usage is like highest for like whatever API that they're using. And that API is like really important to us right now. Like we want more people to be using that. Just like finding a story that you can tell to show like the meaning and the impact of like why you would be doing that particular event. You touched on something there that I want to dig into a little bit deeper around DevRel as a way to sort of enable existing customers. I think a lot of times DevRel gets grouped in with developer marketing and like top of funnel activities, but it sounded like you maybe had some experiences that were more around like, let's take our existing customers and do programs or engage them in a unique way. Can you talk more about how that fits into like the model of DevRel in your mind? Yeah, it's definitely a little bit of a different approach, I think. This kind of started with my work at Twilio and is like sort of the approach that I'm taking at Intercom as well. But depending on also, again, what your company is like, what your business model is like, if you're at a company where Twilio is a good example, there might be a customer that has SMS. So they've had their developers build out whatever it is with SMS. But actually, they also are going to need to build calling in. How can we engage the developers that already like have some familiarity with Twilio and like teach them how they could go ahead and like build in calling. And then, you know, maybe we throw out like, oh, we just have this new video product too. It's in beta. Do you want to try it while you're building out calling? And then if it works great, if not, no worries. And like intercoms really similar as well, right? Like we have the messenger. A lot of people are building. Usually when they come to integrate intercom, they're installing the messenger. But now we have ticketing. Now we have phone actually as well. Built with Tilio. But I think I'm allowed to say that. So it's kind of a similar thing, right? It's like, oh, you have this experience on our platform. Maybe you don't know all the capabilities yet, or you're interested in the capabilities, but you're not quite ready to like move forward with like actually implementing it. But if we can kind of show your developers, like, here's how to do it, they can spin up a prototype really quickly, then that's a really good sort of like activation strategy for us. Yeah, I really like that. And I think there's an inclination in DevRel to... I don't know, like want to distance yourself from the revenue machine, like sales and the sales motion and all of that. But from what I'm like hearing more and more from DevRel people and sort of what I experienced personally is that like, A, like sales isn't that scary, but also B, at a developer-focused company, often salespeople are selling into engineering teams and the DevRel person can be the one that sort of like makes that experience authentic and relatable and fun for the developers involved. And that feels like perhaps an evolution of the role in some ways. Yeah, I totally agree. I think that there's like so many different ways that DevRel teams get structured or where they roll up to within different organizations. And I think one of the hardest things for me actually kind of in making the shift away from Twilio, right, was realizing like, oh, some of the strategies that we use there just don't apply to these other places that I'm working now. Like, it's just a different audience. It's just a different approach. And there's no right or wrong. It's just like using the right tool for the job. So like, for instance, like student developers, right? Like with Intercom, like that's just not a part of our strategy, which I'm sad about. I wish it could be and it was. And maybe it will be in the future. But it is a bit more sort of working with cross-functionally, obviously, that's like, I feel like another sort of big like DevRel buzzword that we always use is like this cross-functional collaboration. But it's really true. And I think that some of the most helpful 
folks that I've worked with at different places were sales engineers or solutions engineers because you see a lot of the same problems. You can work together quite closely. And like in some ways, what we do in terms of like the one-to-one interactions of like answering questions, helping solve problems, helping debug things, like that's really similar. So I think there's definitely a lot to be said for like making friends with some of the SEs at your org if your org has SEs. Yeah, definitely. You mentioned something just a second ago about the role being different, the strategy being different. The titles are also quite different. I'm curious what the implication is at Intercom of being a developer relations engineer. Because like often you see developer evangelist, developer advocate. What is a Mm -hmm. DevRel engineer in contrast to those other two? Yeah, that's such a good question. I think with like evangelism, right, a lot of it's about like going out, like taking the product and like how to use it and building awareness, sort of that like marketing function like we were talking about. It's very like outward focused. And then, yeah, it is confusing because sometimes advocacy is kind of that as well. But then I've also seen it at different companies where they call it advocacy more so because a lot of it's also about bringing like feedback in and really like influencing the roadmap and the strategy based on what they see in the community or like feedback that they're getting. I think that sort of like the title that we went with or that like Intercom sort of like came up with even before I joined is engineer in part because it is like a lot of fixing our open API spec or like updating our open API spec or like trying to figure out what to do with our SDKs and like how we maintain those and things like that. So I think there is a little bit more of an engineering flavor to it as compared to like some of the DevRel roles that I've had in the past. Great. Uh, That sounds good. So when you're working on the SDK, when you're working on educational materials around something like Intercom, I would imagine you've seen a lot of different approaches over the years, both as a developer and on the DevRel side. Are there any guiding principles that you've developed over time for what makes good developer resources? Yeah, I think that, I mean, it's kind of obvious, I guess, but just like readability and making things easy to follow. We had a really great technical content team at Twilio. And I remember like, I would like draft a blog post of how to build something. And they'd be like, oh, go into more detail here. And I'd look at it and be like, there isn't any more detail. And I'd be like, no, there is. There's a lot more. Like there's like things I missed, you know? And I think that's a problem that I face personally. And I kind of see other places sometimes is like, we assume people know, like we aren't explicit enough sometimes in the steps. And then you'll get like a ticket that comes in like, oh, I didn't realize I needed to like click this button. It's like, Oh, yeah, because like I assumed that when I was writing it, that you would just know to do that, but like you shouldn't do that. So there's like that part of it, just like being really thorough. I think having like multiple mediums of of ways to consume the information because everybody does learn differently and they have different ways and even different things that they do, right? Like some people are like big YouTube people. They like learn everything on YouTube. And so the chances that they might enter some search terms and come across your video on YouTube is much higher than if they were just like Googling something or like coming to your doc site directly. I think that a lot of people are really good at like using analogies. And I think that that's definitely a good one as well. This is a very random anecdote, but I recently did a meditation retreat and we weren't allowed to talk during it. But at the very last day, we were allowed to break the silence and talk. And it turned out another girl in my dorm room was a technical writer for like a QA automation software. And so we were just like chat, chat, chatting. And then somebody in our room 
we were talking about like APIs or something and somebody in the room was like, what's an API? And then her and I looked at each other and like, she was like, well, and she like had this, you know, great analogy of like what an API is. And I do think that's like a very like overarching guiding principle that a lot of us as educators have is like try to draw comparisons to something that people understand so that they can make those connections themselves. Yeah, I guess just trying to have like empathy for the developer, really think about it from their point of view. That kind of goes back to the first point that I brought up, but we're always going to have a little bit of bias, especially like it was funny because when I started this role, I was like, okay, I'm going to try to like go through everything like I've never seen it before and then try to remember what this feels like. Because the more obviously, if you know you're an educator or you work in DevRel, you have to understand the product really well. You have to get to know the ins and outs of it, but then you do start to have that bias of just knowing how everything works. So I think always trying to put yourself in the developer's shoes and like think about what the experience would be like for them coming and looking at your docs for the first time or doing a tutorial or watching a video. Yeah, absolutely. One of the other things I saw you've been involved with a handful of years ago was the Last Mile program too. And when you're talking about people learning about an API for the first time or learning about your API for the first time, I'm curious what things you've seen from folks that you've worked with who are learning about tech for the first time or learning about programming for the first time. I will never forget this for like many reasons. I'll try to tell this story quickly because it warms my heart so much. So The Last Mile is this program that helps people who are incarcerated learn how to code. So then they can go on to get jobs when they are back out in their communities. And there's a lot of other really amazing organizations that have partnered with The Last Mile. Like there's one called Next Chapter, where companies like Slack and Dropbox and a bunch of different ones basically all will create apprenticeship programs within their companies so that once somebody graduates from The Last Mile, then they can get an apprenticeship at these companies and and be a full-time software engineer. And when I went into one of the classrooms, they only can access the laptops for a couple of hours a day. So the time that they actually get on the computer is kind of limited. And I met this one woman who would write out her code like in a notebook, like on pencil and paper. And like she had all of this sort of pseudocode and then actual like JavaScript code that she'd written out in her notebook and like she was showing me where she'd then like put it in her code editor and everything. And it's funny because actually like, I mean, I hear this all the time too. I'm sure there's probably some like scientific study that says this, that like you actually do remember things better or you can process them better when you write them out, pencil and paper, like by hand or like electronic tablet or whatever you fancy. But anyway, the end of the story is that my friend who was the teacher in that classroom got married in August And I went to her wedding and I was like sitting there chatting with this lady. And I was like, this lady looks so familiar. And the lady goes, you look so familiar. And the lady was the one who had written out all her code and like made this website and was showing it to me in the classroom. And she's a full-time software engineer at Plaid now. So that was just like really amazing to see like a real life human example of like the program, like having an impact and really allowing someone to like have a new career and obviously someone who like had the aptitude and had the skills and just needed to be basically like shown a path and kind of how to like start it but you can figure it out like even if you don't have access to a computer all day every day like you can still figure it out yeah and i can only imagine that going through that process of writing it on paper probably gives you a really deep understanding of what's actually going on when your code is run as well It's almost like 
easy to rely on error messages in a compiler, right? But like, if you're trying to think it through and make the most of your time, you probably gain a really strong understanding of what's going on there beyond what you might get by the trial and error approach. Yeah, it's so true. And then also, yeah, if you have to go into a whiteboarding interview, you're already on a good path forward. Like, yeah, you've gotten a lot of practice, whereas that's terrifying and hard to do. So I feel like if you just started out the gate, then you'll be fine. Yep, 100%. It also reminds me of, I always love the history of computers. And a lot of people in the early days, because of timeshare computers, would do the same thing where they wrote out their code and then use the timeshare to actually enter it in, which maybe it's full circle moment. Obviously, it'd be better if they had more access, but definitely there's history to it as well. That is really cool, actually. Yeah, that there's some history to it. It ran into this problem at some point in some fashion. Yep. The questions I like to end on, we only have a couple of minutes left, unfortunately. I always love to hear from folks about other technical creators or educators that they really kind of respect and follow in the industry right now. Are there any folks out there that you think are doing really good work around developer content or technical content in general? Learn with Jason. So good. Really, really good stuff. So many good guests on that show. I have really interesting things to talk about and share. I used to work with this guy. I'll always just think of him as like one of the best educators out there. Like he's just so good at explaining things. And I think he maybe just moved over to Cloudflare, but his name is Craig Dennis. Huge in like the .NET community, but Layla Porter uh, also worked with her at Twilio. And she's always making like super creative videos or like there was a period of time where she was like live streaming and she was like explaining how she would make the backgrounds of her live stream on the live stream, which was just like really, really cool. I love learning with Jason as well. He has some really, really cool content and guests. Yeah, it might be my whole list for now. It's all good. It's a good list. So the question that we always end on here is sort of like a aspirational, like picking someone's brain question. I love to hear if there's any person out there who you think has done really special work, like an aspirational figure, where if you could just get lunch with them and pick their brain for two hours, it would be like a dream scenario. Someone in tech, someone in whoever. I've heard heard it all at this point. Wow, this is such a good question. I guess I would have to say Bjork. Okay. It would be Bjork. She's actually like really interested in technology. She has all these different things where she talks about like technology. And obviously she's like so inventive. Like she used like so much tech within her music and the albums that she's created. And in many ways was like sort of like a pioneer in like taking it into more of like mainstream music. So yeah, it would totally be Bjork. I was not expecting to say that. I thought I would be someone not like totally different than that. But like that is how I feel. It's Bjork. I love it. That's a fantastic answer. Thank you so much, Liz, for sharing everything and for being a fantastic guest. We'll include some links to your work and where to find what you're doing online. I hope everyone enjoyed listening and will subscribe for more episodes soon. But happy hacking. Thanks again. Thanks so much for having me, John. And feel free to reach out to me. I'm at ECMOI on Twitter. And I'm really looking forward to listening to more episodes of the podcast as well. Amazing. Thank you. The State of Developer Education is brought to you by Major League Hacking. To find out more about Major League Hacking and how we're educating the next generation of developers and helping the world's leading companies reach them, visit sponsor.mlh.io. 
And make sure to search for Developer Education in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen, and click like and subscribe so that you don't miss any future episodes. And if you like it, please don't forget to leave a review, and we'll give you a shout out on a future podcast. On behalf of the team here at Major League Hacking, thanks for listening and helping us empower the next generation of technologists. Happy hacking! Thank <laughs> you.